Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. If you are, uh, if you're visiting with us, um, we are in a uh, a series of messages uh, that. Uh, in the book of Ephesians. And I told you that from time to time we're going to take detours. Actually, today is one of those detours. Um, but before I talk about that, I need to let you know about another detour that we're going to be taking in a few weeks, uh, really about the, the first middle part of March. We're going to be, uh, we're going to pull out of Ephesians, and uh, because Ephesians talks about this, um, we're, we're going to get to that place. We're going to look at some verses that have to do with the gospel. And then we're going to, as a church, uh, saturate ourselves in the gospel for several reasons. But one of them is to connect. And so one of the the ways we do that when we do a spiritual growth campaign is we we do messages related to that. But we also do small groups. And so we're trying to launch a bunch of new small groups so we can get the whole church in there. And here's the ask. We're asking you to consider opening your heart and your home Maybe to host, maybe to lead a small group uh, during this uh, seven-week campaign. And uh, if you do, I promise you this, you will be blessed by God above. We will, we will work to help train you up so you can, you know, you don't have to live with fear that you can't do that. You can do this, okay? Um, and uh, so we want to do that. And the way that you can get connected to that is just pull a connection card out and write small group and how we can contact you. You can email the church office and say, yes, I'm, I'll open my, my, my life to something like this. I want to be in. Um, so I would encourage you to do that. Now, we're, though we're taking a detour today from Ephesians, I want you to know why. Um, we, uh, we began and we've been walking kind of through verses 1 through 14 for the last three weeks. We're going to kind of jump back in there uh, again today. And I want you to look at this. So we're going back to verse 1 to start with. I want to read it to you. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Saints there is not about leaders. It's not about people with special powers. Uh, they can't jump tall buildings in a single bound. This is just about the regular person who has trusted Christ and is following him now. It's about saints. That's the identity. And it is so important to God that you get that foundationally because it has eternal implications. And we're going to talk about that today. But it's, it's in his will. And so in these, the, these verses that we've been looking at, I want you to notice how many times that comes up. We saw it in the, in the first verse. But then again in verse 5, it said, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the attention of what? His will. In, in verse 9 he says, He made known to us the mystery of what? His will which he purposed in him being in Jesus. So he's, he's helping us know his will through his son. In verse 11 it says also, We have obtained an inheritance according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of what? His will. It is God's will for you to know, understand, build your life on the identity that you have in Christ. It is of ut just utmost importance. It is urgent on the mind of God. And you can see it in Paul's writing. It's that which the church will only can, can, can only stand to be built on is that kind of foundation. Now last week we looked at a portion of that. And, and Paul, Paul is, he has to 
this incredible mind and he helps us think cognitively about so many deep spiritual truths. And he, we looked at that last week about adoption and our inheritance and all of that being a part of our identity. But I want to I pull out of uh, Ephesians this morning and I want us to go to Jesus' teaching on identity because in this teaching that Jesus gives, it, gets, it, it draws our heart in more. It, 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 it pulls at our soul, I believe, a little more. And I think it's important that we get both the, what I'll call the cognitive and the, the, the deeply emotional connection to this identity that God has given us. So you can start turning to Luke chapter 16. But as you're doing that, I want you to watch this video. just a second. I've asked Pastor Cherry if he would come up and just kind of give us a brief backstory on how all of this came about. Okay, so uh, second Wednesday night of January, uh, one of our students, Julia Harris, brought a friend, brought actually two friends, and Emma was one of them. Uh, and we had an open mic night, and the first night she was there, she got up and spoke on the mic. I was like, wow, she must feel real comfortable. And then as she got more and more plugged in, uh, Caitlin gave her a Bible and a journal, and Emma was just asking all kinds of questions, spiritual questions. And so leading up to that, we got to Folly Beach, uh, and then small groups began to just ask more and more questions. And I think the highlight, besides actually baptizing Emma, the highlight for me was there's a huge industrial kitchen, if you will, at, at Folly Beach. And there were about seven of us sitting on the counters in there. And Emma was just, she had a journal just asking questions. I'm like, yes, because a lot of people just don't ask the questions. And they were hard questions. They were tough questions. But there be became a moment where we're standing there and Emma, I don't know if you recognize this, Emma, but you had a journal of questions and you put that thing to the side and you said, I'm ready right now. And she laid that down, and so about seven of us got in a big circle. She asked Jesus to come into her heart, mm. and uh, ran out there and told Julia and the other girls, and they're all screaming. About ten minutes later, they come into the kitchen like a herd of girls, and uh, I guess you could say herd of girls. 
and said, can I get baptized now? And I'm, uh, this weekend, I'm like, uh, yes, if your parents are okay with it. So she called her dad, and her dad came out Sunday morning, videoed it, brought her towels and everything. And that's, that was the result. So yeah. it was an amazing thing. Yeah. Don't go anywhere. I want you to, to, to meet Emma and her, her friend who was brave and courageous, uh, Julia, and invited Emma. They're, they're, they're holding on to each other for dear life here. And, and we, come, come on up here. Come, come on up here a little bit further. Um, this is your certificate of baptism. And here's what it says. It says that you were baptized at River Bluff Church. Now, I, we have video footage that you were baptized in the ocean at Folly Beach, but here's the deal about River Bluff Church. It's not this building. It's these people. It's those people. It's this person. And so wherever the church is, whether we're gathered together or whether we're scattered elsewhere, we're doing the work of the Lord. And Julia, you rock, sister. I mean, you just do. Well, I, I know that, but sometimes the way he rocks is through you. And she's living proof of that. And so thank you for setting the bar high for the rest of us to say, I just want my friends to know Jesus. I, I, that, that's so cool. We're praying for you. We thank God for you, and we love you, and we're grateful. See, see these people? They're, they're messed up, and they're awkward. I know that, you know. I'm, I'm the king of that. But um, the, you're, this is your family forever, and we love you, and we're glad you're part of it. God bless you, my sister. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks, dear. There is a real part of me that just wants to go home. Don't just go ahead and cast that idea out your head. Um, I guess I shouldn't have brought it up. Um, <laughs> grab your Bibles. We're going to read together this parable from um, our Lord Jesus. It's in Luke chapter uh, 16. And because it has implications into this understanding of our identity. And uh, I want to read it with you. Um, Jesus starts the parable this way. He said, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Who desired to be fed with that which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in his flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime... You received your good things, and Lazarus and like men are bad things, but now he is comforted here, you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, it's been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not pass or cross over to us. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. So that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, let them hear. Hear them. And he said, no father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is, this is the word of the Lord. 
Now, what I'm hoping that you get captured by this morning is what does it look like for you to acquire a heavenly identity? How do you live that out? How do you build your life on that? And what happens if you don't? What happens if you don't build your life on, if you don't acquire a, a, an eternal identity in God and you build your life on something else? So here's, here's, here's how we need to start that. And for me, this is coming out of, out of the, um, this parable that we're looking at that Jesus taught. First of all, we've got to realize that we are all building on our identity every day. We're actually building this identity. Now, this, is, this identity is something that we talk about a lot around here because it is the foundation on which discipleship happens. If you don't get this right, if you don't understand what the Bible says about you, what God has declared about your identity, your walk with Jesus will be off tilt all the days of your life here. You'll miss out on so much. And so one of the tools that we use that we distribute all the time is a little bookmark that just reminds you of, of statements based in scripture of who the Bible says you are. And I'm just going to put them out here for you to get. If you lost yours, get one. If you've never had one, get one. Because it's rooted in the word of God for your identity. And it is so important for you to, 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 to grab hold of this. And Jesus in this parable tells us some incredible things things about our identity. And he does it by first of all introducing two characters. The first character is a man who is known as rich and the other one's poor. And I want you to notice as we walk through this the stark contrast because you couldn't get almost more polar opposites than this. One is covered in luxurious garments the scripture tells us. The other is in sores. One is feasting sumptuously every day. The other is just begging for a crumb that might fall off of this guy's table. One of the last things that we're told about them that's different is they both die, but it says one is buried. The rich guy's buried. Doesn't say anything about the poor guy being buried. And in that day, more than likely, he was, his body would have just been kind of tossed aside. That, that, that was possible for that to happen to those who were poor. Somebody may have buried him, but more than likely not. It's not mentioned that he's buried. There's just a contrast here. And the, Jesus is helping us, I think, try to understand something deep. And for the longest time, I would read this, and, and, and I miss so much of this, but God has allowed there to be some great, really smart people that he has allowed to kind of come into my life, some through reading, some through going to conferences, hearing them teach, uh, who, who have helped me. Some great commentators, people who God has gifted to write commentary, and I get to study these things. And, and here's the biggest difference, that the biggest contrast between the two. One of them has a name. What's his name? Lazarus. The other one does not. He's just known by, you know, his passion in life. One has a name, the other's not. And now somebody may say, well, that's no big deal. That's just a coincidence. Challenge. Go read every parable that Jesus ever spoke, and he never gives anybody a name except Lazarus. And the contrast is, he gives Lazarus a name here, why didn't he give the other guy a name? He only gives, he only names Lazarus. And just so that you know what the name Lazarus means, I put this in your notes, the name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my help. And that's another marked contrast 
One, one character is giving this proper name, Lazarus, God is my help. The other one is not given a name. And it's obvious that God was not his help. Look at verse 25. Abraham, in the story, is speaking to this guy. And he says to this rich man, remember that in your lifetime, you received what? You received good things. One of the great debates that has raged for centuries among philosophers is simply this, what is good? What, what is really, what's, what's the ultimate good? What should we ultimately be trying to build, build our life in? What, 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 what is good? And, and, you know, Abraham is saying, he said, you built your life on what you thought the good thing was. You thought that would be your help. Lazarus built his life on God is my help. There's this huge contrast. He's saying, Lazarus, God is my good. God, God is my ultimate hope. And at this moment, the rich guy's hopes are gone. The, the good thing that he thought good was is gone. All of it's gone. And we've got to be captured by that reality. We've got to be captured by that reality. Here's this rich man. And he's nothing. He has no identity. There's, no, there's nothing about him that exists anymore. He, he has no name. He has no identity because he did not build his life on God. Lazarus had. God was the center of his identity. Now, what's an identity? And, and, an identity is what you understand that makes you distinct as an individual. It, it makes you understand why you're valuable. It helps you know where you're going in life. That an identity is foundational to everything. And, and we need to realize this, that God is the source of that in your life if you're in Christ. And what that means is if that's true, then all the circumstances that come, any change that you go through, any, any pain that comes, if your identity is in God, then at the core, you will withstand anything that comes along. You will always have a self-sustained identity because it's sustained by God. And there will always be a you. You will always be named. You will always have that identity. No matter what circumstance comes along, you'll know you're valuable. When you, when you have a God-focused identity. And somebody say, well, what's a good example of that? Well, Lazarus is a good example of that. Here's a guy who had nothing. I mean, he had absolutely nothing except God. And because of that, he had a name. He, had, he has this identity. And, and, you know, talking about going through change, Lazarus went through the most dramatic change any human being will ever go through. He died. Pretty dramatic change, isn't it? He went through the most dramatic change that you can go through, and he maintained his identity. It stayed with him because it had built on, been built on God. Because building your identity on anything else, even good things. Some people build their identity on their career. Some people build their identity on, on their children, whether they're a good mom or dad. Or they build their, their identity on a love relationship, maybe a marriage. Or they build their identity on their talent or their approval or, or, or their ministry. People build their identities on so many things and so many possibilities. But if you build your identity on anything but God and something comes along and jeopardizes that thing, your identity goes out of the window immediately. And then there's no you. 
And what that means is you feel unvalued. You don't feel like you know what you're living for. You don't, you don't even know who you are. You feel like you're nameless. And that's the reason why Jesus is saying if you build yourself on anything else, you don't have a self. There's, no, there's nothing there. There's not a, 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 not a you there, not a, an identity that can be sustained no matter what comes along. But if you build your life on God, you can. If you don't, you don't really have a name. You'll just be known by stuff you've done. This guy was known as a rich guy. You might be known as a talented woman. But that, that identity will not last. If it's not wrapped in, in, in God's will. And so God's will is that you would require that I would acquire this eternal identity. So that I never have to wonder who am I really. I never have to wonder if I'm valuable. I never have to wonder about where I'm going. And so the question is will you go, will you go as deep as God wants you to through this. Into this journey. Into this passage. Let, let, me, let me ask this another way personally to you. What is your name? Is your name only wrapped up in a relationship you have with another person? Is that how the only way you really think of yourself primarily? Is that you're a dad or a mom or a husband or a wife or an employee or an employee or a manager? You know, a lead at work, somebody important in the community, you know, chairman of the board or the homeowners associate, whatever. What do you associate your, your identity with? Are you retired and living the good life? Are you building your, your, your financial empire? What... What happens? See, some of you say, well, what's wrong with those things? There is nothing wrong with those things until they become your primary. That which you identify yourself with. And so that if you ever got to the place where you said, man, if I don't have that, my life would be over. That Jesus says, yeah, it would be. You're right, it would be. If you don't have a name, an identity in God... In God alone, a God-justified identity. There'll be no you there. So the first thing that we've got to understand is we're all building, we're all building on our identity. We're building it out every day. The second thing that we've got to come to understand is this, is that the identity that you are building, the identity you're building out, it's going to follow you everywhere and forever. It's going to be with you everywhere and forever. I want you to take a look at the second part of the story so you get that. In the second part of the story, and again, remember this is a parable. Verse 23, um, and yes, we're going to say this out loud in what some people would think of the cultural cosmopolitan center of the southeast, Charleston, South Carolina. We're going to say, we're going to say, we're going to use the word out loud. In hell, he was in torment. Now, I know for some of you, you're a little too sophisticated for hell. Uh, some of you may be here and you, you may say, oh my goodness, you Christians get so fixated on hell. That's why I left the church years ago and now you're bringing it back up. I told my friend I didn't want to be here. And then there are, there are others of you who, who have showed up here today and you think, well, I'm not going to say what you think. But you're thinking, hell, oh boy. And you just get excited because you can't wait for somebody you know to burn. You know? You're one of those people that would, um, as, as, our, uh, as our retired pastor, Kurt Bradford used to have, he used to have a t-shirt. He's told you about this. Some of you that are new don't know this. But he, and he's going to be with us. He's going to be bringing the message next week so you can pick at him next week. But he had this Yosemite Sam shirt, Yosemite Sam on it with two guns. And it said, heaven or hell, turn or burn. 
His wife made him throw it out. That's why we all love and thank God for Joyce. The, the, and they're here today, so I, you know, I'm, I'm not talking behind their back. I'm right at you, baby. Love you, man. Um, but here's the, there are some people in the Christian community who you know, are, have this image of, uh, of hell. That it's going to be, they're going to get theirs, you know. And there are Christians who think that. And they're the ones who, you know, walk around holding up signs telling who they hate. Sometimes trying to speak for God like that. But that doesn't match what Jesus is trying to communicate here. It doesn't match what the Word of God speaks about this, this subject. And there's some surprising things going on here that I hope you get captured by. Look at what this man says. The first thing he says is, Would you please send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water so that my tongue could get cooled? Let me ask you a question. What, what kind of job would you have if in your job description it said, Fetch water for Bob? You would be a servant. You would be a slave. And so this rich guy is trying to do what? He's looking at Lazarus and he's saying, Get with it, boy. Come on, man. Serve me. Now where's this guy at? He's being tormented. But the, 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 he had built his identity on something that he is still living with eternally. He still thinks he has this power, this capacity to order people around. He thinks he still has status and power and that Lazarus exists to serve him. So he's just ordering him around. He is still clinging to this self-justified false identity. In the New Testament commentary, international commentary in New Testament, the, the writer there, Joel Green, he points out how incredibly astonishing the level of denial is in this guy's life. You know, he understands he's in torment. He gets that he's being tormented by this choice in his life, but on the other hand, he's absolutely blind to what was happening. He was in complete denial. He still thinks he's in charge. He still thinks his identity gives him status and power. That's one surprising. The second surprising thing that Dr. Green points out was this. It's found in verse 27. He, he, he then says, Then I beg you, Father, descending to my father's house where I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place. Dr. Green points out there's an implication in that statement. And the implication is this, is, look, I, I have a bunch of brothers and, you know, they're, 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 they're following in my footsteps. They're treating the poor just like I did. What they need is good information. What, what they need is, you know, they need a, a good warning. And the implication is, because I didn't get one. Because if I had gotten good information and if I had gotten good warning, you know, I wouldn't be in this mess. So who's to blame? You are. I mean, that's the implication that's going on here. If you'd have just done what you should have done, I'd be okay today. Here's the third implication, and this was the most interesting thing that, that Dr. Green pointed out. And it was what... What the rich guy didn't ask for. Not what he was asking for, but what he didn't ask for. What didn't he ask for? He didn't ask to get out. 
He's, he's, he's ordering things around. He's making requests. But what doesn't he? He doesn't say, will, will you let me out of here? Can, 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 I please, can I please have an out? Because he refuses to ask for forgiveness. He will not admit to himself, first of all, or to anybody else, that he needs forgiveness. That he cannot manage this himself. That he has built his life on that which it leads to destruction. And, and friends, because of that, there is incredible blame shifting going on here. And the Bible teaches that's going to be a very significant part of hell. It is the pit of hell itself. Because the reality is, hell... It's everyone's freely chosen identity who ends up there. And it's that identity that landed them there that goes on forever. Hell is getting what you ask for. Now, nobody helped me understand that reality outside of the scripture and, and him helping me see it than, than C.S. Lewis did. C.S. Lewis really helped me see that. And so I commend to you the writings of C.S. Lewis. I want to read you a, a passage out of a book. Uh, I, if I had the hard copy, I'd have brought it, but it's only on my Kindle. This is from The Problem of Pain uh, by, by C.S. Lewis. It says this. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. So if you object to the doctrine of hell, then you've got to deal with this question. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to wipe out the past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? Smothering every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? God has done that on Calvary. You want, me, you want him to forgive them? They will not be forgiven. Leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what God does. Is he leaves them alone. He gives them what, what they're asking for. In, in his what I think of as probably one of the greatest works that he wrote in the book uh, Mere Christianity and if you haven't read that please I would just encourage you to read it. In his book Mere Christianity he writes this he says Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. We believe that. Every human being is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 70 years. But I had better bother about if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps, for instance, my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually, the increase in 70 years may not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what that life would be. See... Those kinds of identities always begin with kind of like a low-level grumbling. Always blaming others. Always complaining. But for a while, you can kind of distance yourself from, from that. Maybe, you even, maybe you're even mad at yourself about it some days. Maybe you criticize yourself. But there will come a day, if that is not stopped, that there won't even be a you left to criticize. You, you, you won't be there. There'll just be a, 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 a grumble. See, God doesn't send anybody to hell. People move themselves that way. There's something that's growing in all of us that if, if it's not interrupted by the Spirit of the living God and the rebuilding, a new creation in us of His identity, we'll be that nameless one. One of the great ways to think about this, you may, you may have struggled with something like this or you may know somebody who struggles with something like this, but somebody who has an addiction. 
And it can be to a substance, it can be to approval, it can be, it, it can be all, to all kinds of things. But there are two maladies that everybody who suffers from an addiction are struck by. The first is disintegration. Disintegration. Somebody who's battling with an addiction, normally what they started with was seeking pleasure. They went out looking for a little pleasure and they, 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 they participated in that pleasure with this substance. And then after a while, that substance will not maintain that value of pleasure, so you've got to add more substance to it. And then eventually you get to the place where that substance can no longer achieve anything for you, but you are trapped by it and disintegration just begins to slowly tear you apart. And you keep doing it over and over because you can't stop and you are being disintegrated. The second part of addiction is isolation. I isolation. Because you start to blame everybody but yourself. You live in denial. You make excuses. You have reasons. But more and more you're cutting yourself off from people. And the thought is everybody's against me. Nobody understands me. You know, I'm, it's a pity party. And you end up locking yourself in a casket of pity. And that's what Jesus is teaching that happened here. And that's what C.S. Lewis was kind of writing about. He goes on to talk about this. He talks about a spiritual substance that becomes our addictive, you know, component. Our substance spiritually that we're addicted to. And it can lead to disintegration of your soul. And it may not show up intensely in 70 or 80 years. But over the course of a million years, it will look like hell. And you will be a nameless one. So how's this, how's this nameless guy doing? Well, he's in torment because he's disintegrating. That's, that's going on. He's experiencing disintegration. That's what fire does to anything it touches. It, it, it disintegrates. That, it, it, that's going on. And then we see, him, we, we see him ordering, you know, Lazarus around. He's still, he's, his substance... His substance is status and power. And so he's still thinking, I got this. He's trying to push into his own addiction. Because that's what his life was built on. Was thinking he had some kind of authority. And, and folks, when, when you look at it, it's pitiful. It, it's sad. It, it's, it's ridiculous. But do you see the disintegration this guy's life had brought him into because he built it on a false self? And then do you see the isolation? You know, when, when we read in verse 23, it says he looked up and he saw Abraham where? Far away. And in the, in the parable, Jesus has, has uh, Abraham talk about this great chasm. It's isolation. See, the more self-centered, the more self-absorbed you get, the more you get locked in this, in this prison. The more you allow that thought that nobody understands me, nobody knows, nobody gets me, it will always lead to isolation and, and disintegration. And that's not just something C.S. Lewis teaches. If you, if you go to Romans chapter 1, and you read in Romans chapter 1, there's a phrase that repeats itself over and over again in Romans chapter 1. I want you to look at it with me. In verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over in their lusts, and their hearts and God just gave them over. Uh, in verse 26 it says, For this reason, God did what? Gave them over. Uh, going a little bit further, verse 28 it says, God gave them over to a deprived mind. Depraved mind. It, it is just God saying, If that's what you want, I'll give it to you. I'll let you have it. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. See, 
here's the reality about the, the Bible's teaching about hell. And it is scary to think about this in the culture that we live in. There is a, I don't know how else to call it. There's a demon loose in our nation. And right now it's called the pursuit of individual freedom. It's gone beyond what freedom is really about. To give me what I want even if it destroys me and everybody around me. And do you know what the biggest monument built to that kind of pursuit of freedom is? Hell. That's the ultimate end game of hell. Is everybody getting what they want, the way they want it, when they want it, and nobody else matters. It, it, is, it is destructive. And that's the picture that we see going on here. See, there are so many people that have this misunderstanding of, uh, of hell. They, there's this picture, maybe Hollywood, and I know artists over the years have depicted it, that hell is this pit of fire and God just stands over the pit and he tosses people in. He's just dropping people in the pit of hell. And people are trying to climb up the walls screaming, help me, let me out. And God just finally one day at the end of time shuts the lid, puts his foot on it, and laughs. Ha 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 That is not the God of the Bible. That is who Satan wants you to think God is. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is the farthest thing from who the God of the Bible is. The first thing that you need to be gripped by and... And this parable, Jesus is helping us see some of this, is there is no one in hell who didn't want to be there and doesn't want to be there. This guy is in hell. He's asking for all kinds of things. He's ordering people around, but he never says, let me out. Please, can I get out? Forgive me, can I get out? He will never do that. He clings, he clings to that, that false identity because your identity will follow you eternally. And see, that Romans 1 teaches that. It teaches that God just gives them over to what they want. The second thing that you've got to understand about the reality of what the Bible teaches about hell is God's not laughing. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as he's approached, the Bible tells us when Jesus gets, is going into Jerusalem, he weeps. He's crying. His heart, is, his heart is broken. Look at this with me. It says, um, he, he, he says, you, you, if you knew the things for peace, that made for peace, if you understand how to have peace, that you can have peace with God. He's heartbroken over that. When it comes to hell, nobody that's there is trying to get out. And God is, God is not laughing. And Jesus wants us to see this here. There's another thing here about eternity that, you know, it's about eternity, but it's also about, about the here and now. And I want you to see, because to, to see this, you've got to go back a little further in the story to see who Jesus, who he told his parable to. We started at verse 19, but if you go back to verses 14 and 15, you'll discover that Jesus told his parable because he was in the presence of Pharisees who the Bible said loved money and ridiculed Jesus. That was the description of them. They loved money and they ridiculed Jesus. Please listen carefully to what Jesus said to them. He said, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You, Jesus says you are a self-justifier. And just, we got to pause here for a second because there's an interesting kind of thought here. 
If there's such a thing as being self-justified, what would the opposite be? Justified by God. God justified. Jesus is pointing out, there are, there are those of you who are justifying yourself. You, are, you think you can do something to make yourself right with God. You justify yourself all the time. You justify your actions and your behaviors. You're self-justified. And Jesus is pointing out, I need to tell you a story. You need to be captured by where that identity will take you if you're self-justified based on your accomplishments. But if you base your life, your justification on Christ alone because of God's grace alone, now you have an identity that will go with you everywhere. You will always know your value. You'll always know where you're heading. And so Jesus gives them this parable so that they maybe would just understand where their identity could really be rooted. So that they wouldn't choose this self-justification because it's going to always lead to an unstable, eternal identity. See, if, if you have a God-justified identity, it's going to be rooted in God's grace. It will always be secure. It will always be sound because it's kept for you in heaven, the Bible says. So here's the question. How do you know? How do you know whether you have a self-justified behavior or a God-justified behavior? One of the great ways to know is by the, what I'll call the trajectory of your heart towards charity. And this is the third thing that I see here. Uh, an identity that's built on God's grace will always be marked by charity. You'll always have a, a heart of, towards generosity towards other people. It's not just about how you treat the poor. That's a part of it. But, you know, Jesus throughout his teaching tells us that, that what we, what the world sees as detestable, God says is honorable. And what... What God says is honorable, the world says is detestable. And what there is, there's this great reverse. This just incredible reversing of things, reversal of values. See, the deal is, if you are God-justified, you're not just a little bit better than a self-justified person. If, if you're God-justified, you're not just a little bit happier than a self-justified person. What Jesus is saying, if you're God-justified, there's going to be a complete reversal, and you'll know it. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say that you have a hard-working ethic. That you were raised that, man, hard work is good stuff and, and you are a hard worker. You give 147% every day on your job. You, you are a hard worker and you're, you're kind of proud of it. And when you see a lazy person, you don't just think, you know, their life could be so much better if they'd work hard. What you think is they're a miserable wretch. I despise them. They, they have no business being on the same planet as me. You know, if, if your attitude is such that you are so driven by your, your hard-workingness that it causes you to look at other people as less than people, as less than being created in the image of God, bearing His image, if you look at them as less than that, then you are self-justified in your hard-workingness. Let's do another one that's really flying around the planet right now, especially in the good old U.S. of A. Let's say that you have strong political opinions. You heard any of those lately? 
But, you know, you have a strong political opinion. There's nothing wrong with having a strong political opinion unless that strong political opinion brings you to a place where you start demonizing everybody whose opinion is different than yours. And it causes you to despise and to begin to hate them. Do you know who God despises? God despises despisers. You know who God hates? Haters. If, if you find yourself, because of something that you're passionate about, looking at other people as less than, you are living a self-justified life. And it will, you know, Jesus can overcome that, but it may destroy you here. There, there's value for this in the here and now. We, we've got to come to understand that. We've got, we've, got to, we've got to let go of that. We, if you find yourself demonizing, then you're, you're on the pathway to self-justified living. And you're going to experience disintegration and you're going to experience isolation. And you're going to harm people as you go along. It, it, it will be destructive. The way that you know if you are a God-justified person is you have strong moral values. But you don't look at somebody who's living differently than your moral compass and despise them. You pray for them. You ache for them. You're hoping that the, the gospel will come to them. You're looking for ways to bring them to know Jesus so that they can fall in love with the, the God of all grace. You're praying for grace to rain down on them. If you're doing that, you will, you'll see that. And, and Jesus tells us in lots of places, but he says, there's going to be a surprise one day. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, I tell you, many are going to come from the east and the west and they're going to recline at Abraham, with Abraham and Isaac at Jacob and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into what? Outer darkness. They're going to be isolated. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will continue to live in the self-justified identity for eternity. That's what, that's what it's going to look like. See, the great irony of the story is, is everything that's reversing. And Jesus says that love for the poor, love, love for other races, love for people, love for people of other religions, of other political parties, is the inevitable sign that you have a God-justified identity because you know you're only saved by grace. That's it. it it's nothing else. So are you a despiser? Do, do, a, do a heart check. Are you, are, are you self-justifying around something? Because if you do, there's a strong possibility you have an eternally unstable uh, identity. And it may be leading you into isolation and disintegration as we speak. Or is your heart growing more marked by a spirit of Jesus, of a spirit of charity? Last point on this that I just kind of draw about how this has implications for our eternity or identity. And it, you could, I could have just used one word, listen, but I, I want to do it this way. You can only build a God-justified identity through the Word of God. It's the only way you're actually going to build out a God-justified identity is through the Word of God. At the very kind of end of the parable, Jesus has Abraham say to this nameless one as they're having this dialogue. You know, the nameless one says, hey, I know, how to, I know how to escape this. I know how to keep this from ever happening. I know what it takes. And Abraham says, no, you don't. Abraham says, no, you don't. He says, they, if you look at verse 29, Abraham says, look, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, let them, let them hear. Let them, let them listen. Je Jesus is saying, here's how you build on a God-justified I, I identity. 
You've got to have the word of God you, in order to get at, get at it. You know, you've you got to do this. And let, let me show you what this, this guy's asking. He's saying, look, if, if, you will, if you will do something so that my brothers could have this big emotional experience, how about send Lazarus from the dead? You know, let's do the Hollywood version. Have him kind of hover across the room. You know, stuff shooting out of his eyes. You know, um, let's do something dramatic. And then, man, they'll, 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 they'll get it. They'll, 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 they'll listen. You know, let them have a, a religious experience. Put the fear of God in them. You know, then they'll, they'll get it. How does Abraham answer that? No, they won't. That, that, that won't work. Because fear will not change your identity. Fear won't do that. Jesus carefully chooses his words here. That he's put in the mouth of Abraham. And, we, and we've got to see it. Because he goes on to say, you know, the nameless one says, if, well, I tell you what. If somebody would rise from the dead, oh man, that'd do it. That would do it. If, and the word that, Je, the word, that word rise is the same word over and over that speaks of Jesus rising from the dead. And what Jesus is pointing out here, remember he's talking to Pharisees who are probably going to be present at his death. And what Jesus is trying to say is, guys, boys, 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 boys. Even if you were there on the day when that stone rolls away. And even if you were there and watched me walk out of the grave after having murdered me. Even if you were there for that. The only thing it would do for you is go, wow, he's divine. He's powerful. What it wouldn't do is tell you why. Why did I do that? You might get all jazzed up for a few minutes. You might get excited. You may have a religious experience. But the only thing, the only thing that will give you a true God-centered identity is knowing why I did it. And why I did it is from cover to cover in the Word of God. And I did it because I loved you. I loved you. You won't know that simply because the stone gets rolled away. And you see this great tadam, I rise from the dead. That will not help you know. It's only going to be through the testimony, through the revelation of God through people that he gives his revelation to that we have as the word of God. Look at a couple of passages uh, with me here as we bring this to a close. These, are these, these take place on the cross. And Jesus says on the cross, looking at the people who had nailed him there, looking at the people who had beaten him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. See, we've got to understand what put him on the cross. It's his love. Or the power of the resurrection will just be a laser light show. We've got to understand why he did what he did. Look at the next verse from Mark. The Bible tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had never been separated from his father for all eternity and now suddenly he is. he is. He is utterly what? He's isolated. He's completely cut off from his father. Why? Because he loves you. Because you matter to him. And a light show will not change you. The fear of God will not transform you. The only thing that will draw you into a God-justified identity is the grace of God that is rooted in the love of God found in His Son, Jesus. 
There, there is nothing else. And his love is the only thing that will move your heart to trust him totally. I, Emma, I loved what you said. <laughs> I, I trust him. The only thing that will move your heart to trust Jesus for all eternity with your life in the here and now so you quit self-justifying and become God-justified is his love. When you realize how much, he, how much he loves you, everything else fades away. You, you get an identity. You have a, an identity that will be a foundation for all eternity. But without it, you will eternally disintegrate. And without it, you will be eternally isolated. And so Jesus says, come. Come to me and I will give you a name. I have a name that's above every other name. That's what Jesus has. And he says, I'll give you my name. Because he wants to share everything he has with you. That's part of your inheritance. Part of what it means to be adopted. is to be caught up in that reality. Quit self-identifying and self-justifying. And give your life fully. Over. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Jesus because there is no other name. We don't want to be known by any other name, Father. God, I think of how long I tried to justify myself. And I'm so grateful, God, when you, when you broke through that and showed me that I can be God-justified, all wrapped in your grace. Thank you, God. Thank you for tracking us down, loving us enough, Jesus, that you would, you would endure separation from your Father, from love, that you would go through what you went through on the cross because you love us. Help us be wrapped up in your love, a love that was sacrificial, a love that is unconditional because that's all our hearts long for anyway. Forgive us as we look for it in everything else trying to justify ourselves from some dumb substance that kills us ultimately. Maybe it's morality. Maybe it's religion. Maybe it's a relationship. And Jesus is just saying, put it down and let me justify you. You can do that today if you just call on his name. You can have a God-justified life. You can have a name an identity that will see you through all eternity in the grace of God. And maybe you're here today and that's what you want. And the Bible says if you will call upon the name of the Lord, if you'll do what Emma did and just say, Jesus, I'm trusting you. I'm putting my questions down. I'm never going to get them all answered. So I'm just going to put my trust in you. But maybe you're like most of us in this room. We are trusting God, but we still want to run back we want to run back to be self-justified. We want to run back to blaming. We want to run back to all kinds of other things. And maybe today what you need to do is repent of that and come back and live today, now, in the here and now. And what it means to be God-justified and be set free. Live in that freedom. Father, we come now. We come to worship you. We come to repent. We come to be transformed by the power of our identity and you alone. We come giving you thanks, God. We come worshiping you. 
We come to celebrate you and your goodness by giving back to your tithes and our offerings. We come because of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.